1: Welcome back, everybody to the two tongues podcast, and the music's done what's up, you guys? Good morning if you didn't know it's <clears throat> it's morning for me uh holiday weekend was nice though, and um might have celebrated a tad too much uh I don't feel i don't feel tip top today um but listen, I got to stick to a schedule and i've got one for you so I'm bringing you. Young's Greatest Pupils, I decided I'm going to start a little series. I've got two that I'm going to talk about, and I'm beginning with a guy named Eric Neumann. He was Young's Greatest Pupil. I mean, he was Young's star pupil, the guy that kind of picked up the uh, baton from Young. Maybe the best known, and, uh, you know, I have to say, I fucked this up the other day when I tried to bring up Eric Neumann, because it had been a while since I read the book, and I heard about him from Jordan Peterson, who... Is a prolific reader, and his um, like recommended reading list is very long. Point is, like I got I got Eric Neumann confused with um, Henry Ellenberger. Uh, in any case, I, I'm not I'm not intimately familiar with Ellenberger, but um, uh, but Eric Neumann I did uh, did get into, and it's pretty interesting. I think I think I brought him up way way back on the podcast, and what I said about him was that when I'm reading these books. And I'm highlighting, like if I get a paperback copy, I don't care about it. I'll highlight it and I'll put notes in it, that kind of thing. If I get a hardcover or something that's nice, I feel a little bit worse about it, but um, I'll do that. And uh, then I translate those notes, <clears throat> those highlights into my notes. And then I can keep kind of the sparks notes for myself. And that's how I do it. <clears throat> and when I was doing Eric Neumann's book, I noticed that it was almost pointless to use a highlighter because I was literally highlighting everything everything he said sounded exactly right, you know, insightful. And, uh, you know, I was just super enthused about it and I put it down for a while. Don't know why. And, um, was able to pick it back up. And because I had all those highlights in there, it was easy, easy for me, relatively easy to put this one together. Uh, maybe a teensy bit on the long side, but I'll do my best to, to, uh, avoid that. But anyway, long story short, what I wanted to do here is the first, the opening chapter of Eric Neumann's kind of great work, which is called The Origin and History of Consciousness. It's called Ouroboros, and if you listen to the Two Tungs podcast, especially if you listen to my solo episodes, you've heard me talk about that, the Ouroboros, all the time, from Jordan Peterson's perspective, from Carl Jung's perspective, and all kinds of other uh, religious applications. Um, I really like that idea, and if you, if this is the first episode that you've ever listened to, um, the the idea of the Ouroboros is a, just a mythological idea. It goes back very, very deep in history, which we're going to find out a lot about today, and it's something that I first heard about from Jordan Peterson, and he talked about it in the, he talked about it, well, the image of the Ouroboros is a snake that's a circle and it's, he's swallowing its own tail, right? So it's like a circle with no beginning or end because it's the end emerges from the beginning and the beginning emerges from the end. And that's the image you get, um, with this snake. It also reminds me of, um, a little pop culture reference from my history. Uh, I grew up, um, grew up watching a lot of, uh, Uh, 80s and 90s shit Because that was the era that I grew up in And one of the movies early on That had a huge impact on me Was um, The Never Ending Story So if anybody remembers The Never Ending Story The book itself had a Well it had an Ouroboros um, On the front of it It was all wound you know, It wasn't a perfect circle It was all wound together But you had this snake That represented um, Well something that had no beginning and no end It was just this crazy Infinite pattern of slithering and uh, I, th- I think that's kind of interesting that that symbol appeared, you know, way, way back. I think I was six years old when I saw that movie and it blew my mind. And it also gave me like a lifelong interest in fantasy movies. I still, I still love fantasy movies and, and books. Anyway, the Ouroboros, um, so... When I got to Jordan Peterson, he you know, he talked about that in the form of the snake swallowing its tail, um, talked a lot about how snakes and serpents and dragons appear in myths all over the place. and they all sort of have similar meanings, which I thought was just absolutely amazing. Um, and then he starts talking about the earliest creation story that we have. It goes way back to ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, we've ta- we've talked about it before, but again, if this is the first time you've heard it uh, the podcast, I'll tell you. Um, in ancient babylon the creator gods were apsu and mar uh, excuse me tiamat and uh, and apsu and uh, tiamat was the chaos principle and apsu was the order principle and tiamat was the feminine you know the 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 woman version of god and um uh, apsu was the the male version and so what they represented was the tension between opposites so um apsu was referred to as the freshwater and tiamat the salt water so there's always, this, there's always this thread that tells you, symbolically, they're the same. They're both water. And then we could take it a little step deeper into Jungian territory and talk about how water in dreams and in mythologies almost always a reference to the unconscious, you know, the deep. You know the place where I told this story before but I went scuba diving in Jamaica on my honeymoon and when I got past the coral reef and I just looked down into the deep you know where the, where the blue crystal blue water just turns black and I was so afraid for a second looking down into the abyss that's Tiamat you know Tiamat is the infinite deep where any anything can be hiding there anything can emerge from you know this creative principle and um and she's tamed by the order principle you know by 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 apsu and together the union of those opposites the union of masculine and feminine the union of chaos and order ultimately is a generative act so in mythology when those two gods are brought together or more you know more correctly in the beginning when they when they weren't yet separated when they were just one thing you know when that happened the male and female were together and so that's of course an allusion to sex, it's a generative act and what happens when you do that well, you make a baby guys, that's what happens and that's what happens in mythology Uh, Tiamat and Apsu come together and they make Marduk the new god, the god that represents consciousness and that is the earliest creation story and all of the other creation stories that you can think of including the ones that we have in the Judeo-Christian tradition, they have some commonalities to that You know, and and some of them are historical. Some of them are actual connections to ancient Babylon, but you really have a hard time making that argument if you're talking about a creation story from Japan, you know, and you still see parallels even there. So I talk a lot about the Ouroboros. Uh, Young also calls it a syzygy and, um you know it's a very symbolic abstract idea that represents something like god something like an explanation for what there was before space and time you know what an, an explanation for what there is behind our subjective experience whatever uh, objective reality is it's something hard to understand something that we that's not a part of our conscious experience and so we we try our best to piece together some meaning and make some sense out of what came before the beginning. Um, it's hard to say whether that's just a, a a human tendency because we're, you know, bound by time and we experience our lives as, as a temporal order, like a linear progression from A to B to C. And we want to see, okay, well, what happened before A? Was A the beginning? You know, we have this desire to question, but I think it's deeper than that. And that's what Eric Neumann is going to help us to see today. So, <clears throat> without further ado, let's get into this. All right, let's see, let's see. Uh, tr- tr- tr. All right, here we go, you guys. Uh, I'm going to read my, read my intro here, short and sweet. It goes like this. Neumann, Young's star pupil. His origins and history of consciousness was the book Young said he wished he had written. See, and that's, that's great. Young wrote a lot of books and did a lot of lectures, some of which became books and his star pupil wrote the book he wished he had written, you know, something that's condensed all of the, the little nuggets that Young discovered, you know, somebody was able to piece them together in a more elegant way than he ever could. And he was proud of his pupil, but you know maybe a tiny bit jealous actually and he said it was the book he wished he'd written that is a hell of a compliment from a from a you know a master to a student now the opening chapter focuses on how creation mythology mirrors psychological development so there's ways in which you can read these creation stories from all over the world and you can see if you know how to look if you know how to interpret the symbols you can see how the story that it's being told is not really about the creation of the material cosmos. It's about the creation of consciousness. It's about the emergence of consciousness, something like that. Um, And and also how, how these mythological stories that we've always told about where the cosmos comes from, it's like a subconscious sort of metaphysics that, that, truly describes the experience of consciousness emerging from the unconscious at conception in utero and in our infancy. And so you can imagine, well, maybe you can't, but let's try, let's, let's rewind our experience to a time before we can remember. And let's imagine that the story of our life is not about, it doesn't begin when we, when we're born into, into this world and end when we die, but imagine it's, it begins when we're conceived and it ends at the end of our infancy. So imagine this is our timeline. This is what the mythology we're going to talk about today is covering. The time before time, right? The time before we can remember. That the time when we were, you know, when 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 we were the first moments of the sperm fertilizing the egg, the first moments when those two, those two, Beings became one, let's say. That's the beginning. Something like that. Again, I know we, that's something that's buried in our unconscious. It's an experience that we've all had, but of course none of us can remember. And so it's deep and dark and mysterious. But there nonetheless, and that's that's why it gets linked to this mythological story. Um, and it links the source of creation, which is something that I would call God, to the psyche. yes even yours and mine. And to understand the unconscious as with anything unknown, Jung says requires an image. The image of God that Jung uses for this purpose is perhaps the most ancient and widely distributed image of them all, the Ouroboros, the the serpent swallowing its tail. And you've all heard me wax poetic about the Ouroboros or the Syzygy in the past explaining God as the union of opposites, you know, Apsu and Tiamat and all of that. But why not hear it from the horse's mouth? From Young's greatest pupil. He opened with it, after all. So must be pretty important. Here goes. I'm gonna call this first first bit creation myth. Alright, Neumann, what do you have to tell us? Neumann says The mythological stages in the evolution of consciousness begin when the ego is contained in the unconscious and lead up to a situation in which the ego not only becomes aware of its own position, but also becomes capable of broadening and relativizing its experience through the changes affected by its own activity. Yeah, that's a mouthful, so let's, let's talk about this. There's some, it may be a vocabulary lesson was in order before we got into this, so apologies, but... The ego is going to come up a bunch, so it 's important to understand how Carl Jung and uh, Sigmund Freud understood uh, the ego. The ego is something like the part of yourself that you identify with it 's the part of yourself that you identify with your face, with your personality it 's something that changes th- throughout your your life, but you don 't really ever recognize it uh, it 's the thing that you refer to as yourself, the thing behind your eyes, the thing behind your experiences. Um, It's connected with your consciousness, but, but it's, it's not exactly the same thing. It's the part of you that believes you own your consciousness. It's the part of you that believes that, that that's something that belongs to you. It's the thing to which things belong. The I, right? That's that's the ego. And it's not exactly the same thing as as consciousness, that that can be abstracted. And, you know, there's other words that get talk about, talked about, like the superego and all kinds of other psychological terms, which we're really not going to get into today. But it's important to understand that the ego is not exactly the same thing as the psyche or the soul. It's just the part of you that identifies the soul as belonging to you. It's the you part, Okay. So he says here, the mythological stages, and I think that's interesting that he refers to this because he's describing the evolution of consciousness and how that develops. He calls mythological and that connection might sound strange, but it's interesting. It's really interesting. It's the idea that the birth of our sentience is beyond our memory, right? It's, it's in the dark before we were even an ego, before we even knew what we were uh, and that time we spent, you know, um as a as, as gametes or or as a blastula or whatever the heck we were growing into a fetus in our in our mother's womb. That's before our memory. It's what the Australians called the dream time. You know, that's what they call their the time when their gods walked on earth, the time before, you know, the here and now, before the magical time, you know, of creation. They call it the dream time. And that's so freaking appropriate, isn't it? You know, the dream time, the time when we were existing unconsciously. It doesn't mean we, we didn't exist. We existed, but unconsciously. And so because those that experience goes back before memory, the only way we can tell a story about it isn't from memory, right? It's a make-believe story. It's mythology, and that's how we have to tell the story. The interesting thing is that we can The interesting thing is that we can make up a story that has validity and meaning and power that explains our beginnings before we can even remember them. Like, what in the hell is that? We can make up a story that tells us some deep truth about ourselves and the world before we existed. I mean, see, this is where psychology starts butting up against religion. I fucking love it. I mean that should be mind blowing to you. It certainly is to me, and this is why Neumann talks about this period as as myth, as a myth. Right? He said it starts when consciousness. Let's, let's see here. It starts when the ego is contained in the unconscious. So you're not yourself yet. You haven't become an I yet. You're you know washed away in the sea of the unconscious with everything else, and it ends in a situation where the ego emerges and becomes aware that it is an I, right? It says in which the ego not only becomes aware of its own position, but also becomes capable of broadening its experience through the changes affected by its own activity. And that's interesting, too, because what it says is that when the ego finally breaks free of the unconscious and you finally become an I... You have control over the I, over yourself, and you use that control to explore the world, and that changes the I. It changes the ego, right? Change is affected by its own activity. Changes to what? To itself, to the ego. You go out in the world, you have experiences, and you change as a consequence of those experiences. And so Jordan Peterson has talked about this, but it's really hard to understand and hard to put into words, but it's something like the creation of yourself is driven by your own actions, right? Your personality is developed based upon your choices and your experiences that you have. And you have control over that. You're the one that gets to choose what experiences you have, for the most part. And you, you're you the one that controls how you interpret the experiences you have. And so if those, are the, if those things change who you are, and you have control over that, what that means is you have control over creating who you are. And I know I'm talking strictly from a psychological perspective here, but that's super important. That you're like an artist and you're the clay also, and you're molding yourself into whatever it is you want to become. And that's ultimately a power that you have over yourself to to create yourself anew, to become whatever it is you want to become. So it's really interesting. <clears throat> and it also brings the idea of psyche and the idea of God closer together. And anytime that happens, you can bet your ass I'm on board. So I'm pointing it out. He goes on now. Neumann says, the first cycle of myth is the creation myth. Here, the mythological projection of psyche, excuse me, of psychic material appears in cosmogonic form so the the mythological projection of psyche appears in cosmo, cosmogonic form. All right, so there's, you know, probably some psychology lesson that needs to be done here, but the idea is these depth psychologists will suggest that that our, the experiences we have of the subjective external world in in a large part are a projection of our internal world of our psyche and it has to do not so much with the m- matter you know the atoms that make up physical things it has to do with the meaning that we attribute to them and we kind of create that meaning ourselves um, so we so we project that meaning into the objects around us and then we tell a story about that and so this is that cosmogonic myth this creation myth and he says <clears throat> the world and the unconscious predominate and form the object of myth. Ego and man are only nascent, as yet, and their birth, suffering, and emancipation constitute the phase of the creation myth. So this is how the creation myths always going to unfold. And it doesn't matter where you look in culture. It doesn't matter where you look in space and time. Every culture's creation story is going to have these sort of components. What they're going to do is to project out into the cosmos psychic forces, you know, psychic forces that exist within us, but we're going to see them out in the world. And, then, you know, the, the best way, of, I think, of imagining that is to look at the Greek gods, look at the classical gods. And you can see exactly my my point. We have forces within ourselves. Let's say um, I've talked about this before. And I use the same example, so whatever. But you you have a force inside you that's like a drive, a sex drive, a drive to procreate. Very important, fundamental force in biology, right? And that corresponds to feelings of lust and feelings of you know maybe even loss of control over your over your will to a certain degree. And the Greeks had a god for that, and they called her Eros, and she in. Her effect on you is exactly what I'm describing. And of course, yeah, science today is going to say, well, well, Eros isn't really a spirit that, that, you know, touches you and and causes you to be lustful. No. No, that's all these chemicals in your brain that get released. But don't you see that how much improved is the explanation to say that it's chemicals being released in your brain versus to say a spirit, you know, is influencing you from outside? because it certainly feels the same and you can kind of explain it in a similar way. And so this is what I mean when you know what Neumann's talking about projecting psychological forces out into the cosmos and telling stories about them to try to understand them. These are the myths, you know? <clears throat> and the characters in the myth, he said, are the world and the unconscious. And the world and the unconscious, you might call that the conscious and the unconscious, right? Because what what we're conscious of is ourselves in the world. So Neumann says that these characters are the world and the unconscious. What we really have here is is the opposites that we always start with in the Ouroboros. Chaos and order, being and non-being, the conscious and the unconscious. These are the opposites that make up the Ouroboros. And um, they predominate, he says, and they f- and they form the object of the myth. So the story we're talking about even though we might be talking about gods and giving them names and characteristics and all that, what we're really talking about is is consciousness and unconsciousness, period. We're really explaining our own psychology. He goes on, he says, at the state of the separation of the world parents, the germ of ego consciousness finally asserts itself. Now, let me pump the brakes for a second. There's more to this, but the world parents are describing the opposites that make up the Ouroboros. So we talked about Tiamat, the female god, in in the ancient Babylonian myth, and Apsu, the masculine one. Those are the world parents. Chaos and order, the conscious and unconscious, those are the world parents. see, you see what I mean? You can imagine them as gods, but you can also understand them as psychological forces. And that's so important. I have a hard time even explaining to you why it's important. I think it's like beyond coincidence that the stories we tell about the creation of the cosmos are also the stories we tell about the creation of our own consciousness because those two ideas in my mind are not so different. God and consciousness. And if you've had a mystic experience like we talk about often on the podcast, that's one of the things that comes through that God and consciousness, including the thing that you are, are not so different. In fact, they might even be identical. All right, so that's neither here nor there. I just want to explain to you this idea of the world parents. So I'll start over. At the state of the separation of the world parents, the germ of ego consciousness finally asserts itself. While yet in the fold of the creation myth, it enters upon the second cycle, the hero myth in which the ego conscious the ego consciousness in the human world become conscious of themselves and of their dignity okay so this is interesting this is really interesting because what happens here is he's saying that when the world parents separate when chaos and order separate that what is formed is something new and Jordan Peterson describes this, and he even does so when he's talking about the um, Babylonian story. He says that uh, Tiamat and Apsu, when they come together, you know, or in their original state being together, that they're obviously in some sort of a sexual union, and that that union creates a new god, consciousness, Marduk. And isn't that funny, that, that exact same myth that says the forces of chaos and order are separated by what they've given birth to? What they've given birth to is consciousness, Right and Jung, or Neumann rather tells the story of the world parents separating, and what separates them is ego consciousness. That's the again, that's the I, that's the the part of you that believes you're you an individual self, you know, and that is the same story, whether we're talking about the ego kind of emerging from the you know unconscious, the unconscious, because that's what's happened here. Um, or this new god being born in the myth, and because the new god represents consciousness, we're talking about exactly the same story. And what's interesting is that, well, let me read this again because he says, he says that when e, when the ego consciousness finally asserts itself, it says the ego consciousness and the human world become conscious of themselves. And so what happens here is this. It's like the world already existed clearly because you were born into it. It had to have already been here. Um, That's like saying the unconscious exists. You know, it was already here. Why? Because we know consciousness emerges from it. That's how we know the unconscious was already here. The time before time, you know, the world before you were born. That's what we're talking about. And when, when the self emerges from it when the thing you call I appears that's your ego when that comes out of the unconscious what happens then is the ego recognizes itself because it says look I'm here right I think therefore I am that's what we notice we're all, we exist you know that's what consciousness helps us to know that we exist but we also look around and see that the world exists and we're the we're the part of the world that knows the world exists and that's what he's saying when he says that ego and the world become conscious of each other. And the hair stands up in my arms, you know, because what that suggests is something that Jordan Peterson talked about through a guy named John Piaget, who studied children, the development of consciousness in children. And he said that, that children's... that their image of themselves, their understanding of themselves and their understanding of the world are mutually co-created, you know? It's not, it's not like they have some awareness that, that the world existed before them and they came into being. No, it's like the moment they came into being, they were the part of the world that recognized the world. And there's something very hippy-dippy about that. It's the self-aware universe. It's the part of the universe that gets to know it is. And this is what's happening in the myth the human world around us gets to know that it exists through the consciousness of, of the human being, of the creature that's in the world that knows it exists. It's, it's, it's trippy and beautiful and mystical. And then it says here that um, not only did, uh, the, did you know, ego consciousness and the world become aware of each other, but they also became aware of their dignity. What does he mean by that? Like the dignity of the human being, we've, we've heard that, you know, and the dignity of the environment, you know, we definitely hear about that with, uh, you know, with um, uh, the, the, just, the, you know, the, the environmental movement in general. Um, and what comes to my mind is that phrase, know thyself, you know, from the temple of Apollo at Delphi, because that's where the dignity comes from, to know what you actually are. And many of us think of ourselves, we think little of ourselves often. You know, it's often much easier for us to think like that about ourselves, even than other people. We're really hard on ourselves. It's it's hard for us to understand that we do have dignity. Um, Religious people know it better than unreligious people because they will say things like, "We're made in the image of God." Um, You know that we're, um, you know, we're we're a part of a, a spark from the divine. You know, the divine fire. We're something like God, or we are God, and we have. The dignity of the creator of the cosmos that comes along with our being, you know. So there's, I think this is what he's suggesting. That what what is the inherent dignity of man? It, well, it's the source from which man sprang, and that's something like the divinity of the soul, and it's a connection between our soul and the creator of the cosmos. That's what it is. And interesting that that Neumann has that includes that in this. The birth of ego, the birth of your consciousness from the unconscious comes along with recognizing not only your existence in the existence of the world, but your dignity. All right, he goes on, he says, in the beginning is perfection, wholeness. Okay, so in the beginning, obviously should should strike a chord for anybody who has read the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that, so this is Neumann's way of of talking about the creation story. He says, in the beginning is perfection, wholeness. This original perfection can only be circumscribed or described symbolically. Its nature defies any description other than a mythical one, because the ego, which is prior to any Uh, let's see here, oh, excuse me, Um, description other than a mythical one, because the ego, which is prior to any ego, so what he's he's saying here is the ego is trying to describe something that existed before the ego, so I did a better job in the beginning of explaining that, trying to describe the beginning, even though the unconscious, um, the unconscious grasps to understand the unknowable, but it's still unknowable, and there's a paradox there and that is also one of these hallmarks of mystic experience and psychedelic mystic experience is this feeling of paradox i mean oftentimes people people will laugh you know they'll find it they'll find it funny i don't know if that's quite the right word um they find it ridiculous maybe that's the word and laughable but in a cheerful way there's a way there's a way in which mystic experience shows you the absurdity of reality. And then so something like that going on. Um, all right, so let's stop. Let's start with the beginning when he says in the beginning is perfection or wholeness. And that's just the idea of the opposites together. So chaos and order together, uh, Tiamat and Apsu together, uh, whatever, whatever, we, however we want to f- form that. In the beginning, we had these two forces that were that are opposites in union. And because they're in union, they're complete, they're whole. And that is a state of perfection. You know, that's that's the thing that the universe was before the Big Bang, you know, something like that. And then he says that the original perfection can only be circumscribed, which he describes as, well, describing it symbolically. You can't say what it is. You can only talk around it and try to make it clear what it is sort of, you know, obliquely. And that's because the thing you're trying to describe existed before you did. So how are you supposed to make sense of it? And the only way you can do that is by telling a story, telling a myth that includes images. And this, this reminds me so much of the, the discussion we had about postmodernism. If you remember that, it's like the postmodern philosophers were saying that basically meaning didn't exist. And that the meaning of words doesn't exist and the only way that it works for us is because, well, one word only refers to another. It's like a thesaurus. If, if I say to you, um, you know, what is the sun? And you say, well, it's, you know, you're going to use keywords like hot and gas and burning and all of those words, if I asked you what they meant... You would just give me more explanations, combustion and heat and molecular motion. And I ask you what those are, and you're just going to give me other words that just, right? You see what I'm saying? You get this circular logic with words where the meaning is really hard to pin down. And what gives it meaning isn't any particular word. It's this whole web of connected words that surround a symbol, you know? And the sun has all these different words that surround it. And to, taken as a whole, this web of, of words helps us to understand what the sun is. And that is what he's saying here. He's saying that the Ouroboros can't be described. It can be circumscribed, which is what he's trying to say. You're going you're gonna to be able to think of this idea. And all of these other associations are going to come to mind words that have particular meaning or images that have lots of meaning or potential meaning wrapped up in them and that's what mythology does it gives you these images that are f- that are ambiguous and full of potential meaning and y- something about your interaction between your consciousness and this idea allows you to pick and choose those m- meanings and those Im- th- the meaning from those images that correspond best to the truth and it's not, a, it's not a perfect system, but it's a way for you to understand the unknown. It's, it's, a, it's a way for you to know the unknowable. And it's very mystical and very cool. All right, he goes on, he says, For this reason, a symbol always stands at the beginning, the most striking feature of which is its multiplicity of meanings, its indeterminate and indescribable character. And you know this, if you try to describe God, or if you, if somebody does, they're going to tell you all kinds of things. They're going to, if you're a Christian or a Jew, you're going to probably hear something like, um, it's omnipotent and, um, you know, it's omnipresent and all these different words. It's all good and all knowing and all, and and all these sorts of things that have no meaning to us, right? Because there is nothing that, that we experience in the world that is all anything. Nothing is all good. Nothing is all knowing. Nothing is eternal. Yet these are the words we come up with to describe something we don't understand. Do you see what I mean? And taken together, the meaning in all these words is is gonna get you closer and closer to the truth of this idea that you're trying to understand that you simply can't. And he says it's for that reason that a symbol always stands at the beginning. And the symbol we're talking about is the Ouroboros. Ouroboros. What is the beginning? It's a symbol. Why is it a symbol? Because we don't understand it. And the symbol, the snake eating its tail, or opposites in union, the yin and the yang, something like that, stare at it long enough, and the meaning will begin to emerge. And you can make sense of it. You can make some sense out of something that makes no sense. And that is the paradox, again, of mystic experience. Alright, he goes on, he says, um, the beginning can be conceived in the life of mankind as the earliest dawn of human history. And in the life of the individual as the earliest dawn of childhood. So he's saying there's basically two ways of looking at this. Um, Trying to understand the beginning is like understanding the dawn of human history, like when the lights came on. Um, Or looking at the dawn of childhood, like when your lights came on. You understand? Like, you know, when history begins for, for, for the civilization, the, the species, or when, when your history begins. And that's kind of two ways of looking at the beginning. The beginning of the world and the beginning of you. Something like that. And he goes on, the earliest dawn of childhood, like that of mankind is depicted in the images which rise up from the depths of the unconscious all right you might be skeptical of that you might be skeptical of the idea that images rise up from the depths of the unconscious like what does that even mean and if you th- one of those people that want to be skeptical about that i understand you know carl Jung talks about the archetypes and describes them and those are things that he that he would refer to as images that rise up from the unconscious. They're images which is something like some kind of organized meaning, and they exist in the unconscious before we're ever here, before the ego ever emerges from, from unconsciousness. Those images are there in the unconscious with us, you know, with our potential before we emerge into the world. And uh, again, if you think that sounds strange, I don't blame you, but I would ask you this. Where do your ideas come from? Where do they come from? How often are you like trying to puzzle out a new idea and come up with something? It, it, it just doesn't happen that way. You stumble upon a new thing. It's not intentional. To, stu- to, to, to discover something new is almost never intentional. You know, even in, even in the early days of science, when we were making discoveries all the time, they were all accidents, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but damn, we're surprised when it does. And we take a note. Now we know something else about the world. That's how your ideas are. Like things pop in your head and you think to yourself, damn, that's a good idea. I better write that down so I don't forget it. And you never write it down and you forget it. You know, you do. But where did that fucking idea come from? It just popped in your head, you know? You have one image you see and one smell you smell and, you know, one, you know, whatever series of circumstances. And suddenly this idea, this new idea just pops in your head. Where did that come from? Well, the depths of your unconscious. How about that for an answer? That's what he's talking about. All right, he goes on, he says, the dawn state of the beginning projects itself mythologically as the beginning of the world. So we tell a story about our own beginnings, about the beginnings of consciousness, as a story of the beginning of the world. And you might wonder why the conflation, and I don't know that it's like a conscious conflation. I think it might be more of an accidental sort of a thing. But it's also important to, to mention that every single one of us, if we go back to our earliest memory, the earliest thing we can remember about ourselves, for us, that's the beginning of the world. You know it? I know it. We all know that the world existed before and will continue after after us and all that, fine, fair enough. But for us, the earliest memory of our conscious awareness is the beginning of the world. So he says the earliest dawn of childhood, like that of mankind, is depicted in the images which rise from the depths of the unconscious. The dawn state of the beginning projects itself mythologically as the beginning of the world. Mythological accounts of the beginning must invariably begin with the outside world, for the world and psyche are still one. That's interesting. There is as yet no ego that could refer anything to itself. The psyche knows itself as the world, and in the world, and experiences its own becoming as a world becoming. That is exactly right. So he's saying that that moment before our ego emerges that while we're still existing in this sort of unconscious state that there is no difference between ourselves and the world and we're going to get there but I'd ask you to imagine and this is difficult but imagine when you when you were first conceived and you were not even a fetus yet you were something you know existing within your mother's womb something hard to pin down, you know, something constantly transforming and growing and changing, whatever it is that you are then is something unconscious, you know, you might say, and that, that, that thing existing in the womb doesn't know a difference between what it is and where it is, you know, it doesn't make a distinction between the womb and itself, it, it can't, but it feels Something it feels that it's in a place. It feels that it has existence to, and to some level, you know, even even just at a cellular level. And so there's something about being an embryo, whatever. Imagine what that experience must be like, you know. And it's and it's it's difficult or impossible for a, a creature in that state to understand itself as separate from the world, you know. And you can just imagine, like even a. You know, even a more developed fetus living in its mother. It's like its mother is the world. You know, it has no it it doesn't know anything about the world outside, nor does it care. It's warm and comfortable and it's getting everything it needs and floating around in this place. It doesn't even it doesn't even understand a distinction between itself and the place it's floating around in. That's the whole world. And so that's something like It's something like that for each of us. And so that's something like what we place at the beginning of the myth that we tell about the beginning of the world. And that myth is not a myth about the beginning of the world. It's a myth about the beginning of consciousness. And that's why Neumann says that it experiences its own becoming as a world becoming. All right, now, Neumann brings up another guy named, um, I'll probably mispronounce his name, but Ernst Cassier, C-A-S-S-I-R-E-R. I'm going to go with Cassier. I'm going to pretend that I can speak French. I don't know if it's even French, but Ernst Cassier has shown in all peoples and in all religions, creation appears as the creation of a light. Thus, the coming of consciousness in contrast to the darkness of the unconscious is the real object of creation mythology. So here you have somebody who studies mythology who's saying that in every religion across all the people in the world every everybody tells a story at the, about the creation of things and it's always connected with light and we can obviously we can reference that from the christian story let there be light but that's the case in creation mythology everywhere and the connection between light and consciousness is interesting because well you know, we associate our consciousness with our experience, and one of the one of the deepest and oldest and most fundamental experiences is sight. You know, you know, even the plants out there that are photosynthesizing sunlight, turning it into food, they're they're able. To, you know, like a flower follows the sun across the horizon. They're able to detect it. You know, they have an experience of light. You know, uh, a freaking single celled algae has an experience of light, just like you and I do when we open up our eyes and look at the world. So there's something really fundamental about light because it's connected with our consciousness. And you, you can also think of words like enlightenment that are connected to expanded consciousness. You know, light is the thing that seemingly makes consciousness possible. It's deeply, deeply connected with with consciousness, And so it appears at the, it's one of those images that appears at the very beginning in these myths. All right, he goes on, he says, but the earliest dawn is still prior to this birth of light out of darkness and a wealth of symbols surrounds it. Okay, so the earliest dawn, right? If light, even if light is the first thing to be created, there must have been a time before, before light. So there must have been something first. And so this is what he said He calls the earliest dawn. And he says the wealth of symbols surrounds it. And you can think about that in the postmodern way that we were describing earlier. You've got this web of meaning that surrounds this unknown thing or unknowable thing. And that's the Ouroboros. That's the thing at the very beginning that we have no direct experience of. That's the most mysterious. And it's got a wealth of symbols surrounding it to help us make sense of this v- deeply unconscious and unknowable thing. He symbols gather around the thing to be explained, understood, interpreted. The act of becoming conscious consists in the concentric grouping of symbols around the object, all circumscribing and describing the unknown from many sides. Each symbol lays bare another essential side of the object to be grasped, points to another facet of meaning, Then he says, only the coherent symbol group can lead to an understanding of what the symbols are trying to express. And that's exactly right. It's exactly the way the postmodernists described language. I also find that interesting. This is a side note, but I find it interesting that language is a representation of the world. We come up with symbols that represent the world. And then we see a connection between the the meaning of words but also the meaning of objects. And it's almost like objects in the world are representational the same way that words are representational and it's mystical and strange. And I'm not sure I understand it all the way, but it's, it always, it always occurs to me when I'm talking about this stuff, that that is the case, that there are, that there is a web of meaning surrounding words and objects that are similar and they allow us to make sense of them. And it, I'm not sure what the difference is between making sense out of words and making sense out of objects. I'm not sure that there is a difference, and I find that I find that interesting. So you've got this you've got this series of symbols, each have meanings and associations attached to them, and if you take them as a whole, you consider them together, that group of symbols is going to give you some way of understanding something, even something that's that's not Knowable, that's not understandable, that we have some ability to understand the ununderstandable. And that paradox, again, is part of the mystic experience. Unbelievable. All right, he goes on. He says, The question about the origin of the world is at the same time about the origin of man, the origin of consciousness and of the ego. It is the fateful question where did I come from? that faces every human being as soon as he arrives upon the threshold of consciousness. The mythological answers to these questions are some symbolical, symbolical, um, like all answers that come from the depths of the psyche, the unconscious. So the answers to those questions like, where did I come from? Or where did the world come from? We do pose answers. You know, if you ask yourself those questions, you're going to start to provide yourself possibilities, you know, And he says that those answers do come to us, but they come to us in symbols, they come to us in images that are trying to describe something that we, that, that we can't, we can't describe exactly, that we can't know, like we know, you know, most things. And this is why we tell myths, right? This is exactly why we tell myths, because those answers, just like the myths we tell, come from the depths of the psyche, the unconscious. And Jung talks about that when he talks about the archetypes and he talks about how you can see them in myths. You know, like we talked about a minute ago with Eros, the god, of, the goddess of love, um, you know, uh, Ares, the, the god of war, you know, how often do you feel, you know, taken over by rage and anger and you feel like, you know, you, you don't even have control over that anymore, like you've been possessed by a spirit. That's another example, you know, another example of um, a force that's within your own consciousness that gets projected out into the world, you know, as a God in this case. And that, that's an archetype, you know. That's an, it's an instinct that we have. We don't understand it, and so we project it out into the world and we try to, we try to again, surround it with images that it will help us to, un, to make sense out of it. All right, then Neumann says, the psyche blends as does the dream. It spins and weaves together, combining each with each. The symbol is therefore an analogy, and therein lies its wealth of meaning, but also its elusiveness. Only the symbol group, compact of partly contradictory analogies, can make something unknown and beyond the grasp of consciousness more intelligible and more capable of becoming conscious. Exactly. Exactly. I also think it's funny here that um, he talks about uh, this web of um, this web of meaning. You know this analogy, these symbols, and the, the analogy. He says that that they create a well; it's wealth of meaning, but also its elusiveness. And I have to point out that meaning and elusiveness here they're kind of opposites. We're kind of seeing um, the Ouroboros in miniature here, uh, because you know a, a well a wealth of meaning is something that. Well, you can imagine something that means everything. It seems very graspable. You know, it's got solid, firm meaning everywhere you look. But then you go to grasp at it, and it's elusive. You you know, your hand goes right through like it's a ghost. Where'd the meaning go? And then you see another example of this paradox of opposites in union. And we're going to continue to see that. And that brings me to the next segment called the Ouroboros. All right, now we're getting to it. All right, Neumann goes like this. One symbol of original perfection is the circle. Allied to it are the sphere, the egg, and the rotundum. It is Plato's round that was there in the beginning. And then there's a Plato quote that goes, Therefore the demiurge made the world in the shape of a sphere, giving it that figure which, of all, is the most perfect and the most equal to itself. Isn't that interesting? So Plato gives the image of the circle to the Demiurge, which is a character that is, is described as having created the cosmos, a mythological character that, that creates the cosmos. So that's God, okay? So he says God and the circle. Are, are, he said that's the, that circle was the symbol that's most equal to the idea of God. And there's no... It's not hard to see why. If you look at the associations about a circle, it's something that has no beginning and end; therefore, eternal, right? And that's how we think of God. It's also something self-created, because remember, the beginning of the circle emerges from the end, and the end emerges from the beginning. So it's self-created. Where did it come from? Same place it ended. You know, it comes from itself and it goes to itself. It's self-created and eternal. Those are the kind of. Those are the kind of. Um, words and meaning that surround the idea of a circle. And all of those things you could say the same about God. Am I right? All right, he goes on, he says, circle, sphere, and round are all aspects of the self-contained, which is without beginning and end. There is no above and no below, no space. That's also something we think about when we think about the beginning, you know, before the big bang. That's one thing we say, that there was no time and there was no space. This is the kind of idea that's all wrapped up in in the image of the circle or the round or the sphere. All right, he goes on. The round is the germ from which the world arises. It is also the perfect state in which the opposites are united. The perfect beginning, because the opposites have not yet flown apart and the world has not yet begun. The perfect end, because... In it, the opposites have come together again in synthesis, and the world is once more at rest. Okay, so you would imagine if everything ever comes to an end, you know, we do use that word, at rest. It's not just that there's motion in the universe, and if the universe disappeared tomorrow, there would be no motion. It's also the same way we say when we die that we're at rest, you know? So the end is is symbolized as a state of rest. And so again, what he's talking about here is the Ouroboros as the beginning and the end, the place of birth and the place of dissolution and final destruction. And he goes on, he says, the round contains the world parents. Okay, so imagine the Ouroboros as this round thing, whether that's the yin and the yang symbol, I think it's a pretty good one, or whether it's the serpent eating its tail. Either way, you have this round wholeness, right? It's contained, self-contained in the round. And what's in there, what's inside, are the world parents, conscious and unconscious. Consciousness and unconsciousness. He says this, he says, in Egypt, as in New Zealand, in Greece, as in Africa and India, the world parents, heaven and earth, lie in the round, spacelessly and timelessly united. For as yet, nothing has come between them to create duality out of the original unity. The container of the masculine and the feminine op- uh, opposes excuse me opposites is the great hermaphrodite, the primal creative element, the Hindu Purusha, who combines the pole in himself. And then there's a quote from uh, from the Upanishads, it goes like this In the beginning, this soul, excuse me, in the beginning, this world was soul, alone in the form of a person. He said first, I am. He caused that self to fall into two pieces. Therefrom arose a husband and a wife. So what's interesting here is two things. You get this illusion of, in in this Hindu myth, about the first being, the first conscious being splitting into two and becoming male and female. And you can imagine that before they split into two, they were something like what Plato was describing. They were something like a hermaphrodite, right? Both male and female together, Tiamat and Apsu together, the opposites united. And from that is possible to create multiplicity. From from that is possible to from that one thing is possible to create all the diversity in the world. And how that begins is when both sides of the Ouroboros, you know, the uh, f- the masculine side and the feminine side, the c- uh, the conscious side and the unconscious side. What what causes that to happen is they're splitting into two, the opposites finally splitting into two, and how that is described again is a generative act when opposites come together, the masculine and the feminine they have sex they create something new in the myth that's marduk that's the, that's the god that represents consciousness and it's born from chaos and order and it sort of splits them down the middle it come it it comes into being right in between and separates the opposites for the first time so that's the mythological image that you want to hold in your mind and imagining that consciousness emerges from this this very difficult to describe place, that before consciousness emerged was one thing, one great paradox, opposites united. All right, he goes on. We read in Plato, and he established the universe, a sphere revolving in a circle, one and solitary, yet able to bear itself company and needing no other acquaintance. So another another quote from Plato that talks about the beginning of time, that the world was established as a revo- in a revolving sphere. So we have that circle image, and it says even though it was what's one thing, and solitary, that it can bear itself company. What does that mean? It means that there's multiplicity inside the one. It's, it means that the that the the Ouroboros in the beginning is not just one thing. It's chaos and order. You know, it's something that can be its own company. It's something that can be its own creator. You know, it's like God is more than one thing, and it, it makes me think of uh, you know the early early uh, passages in the Bible that always confused me when I was a kid, when God is described as we or us. You know, uh, that uh, when when Adam and Eve eat the eat the fruit of the, in the Garden of. Um, the Garden of Eden, he says, um, you know, we have to, we basically have to kick out Adam and Eve because otherwise they might take a bite out of the tree of life and become as one of us. That's how God describes it, itself as one of us, you know, because God is many and one. And that's the paradox, right? The many and one are also opposites in union. So you see it even there you know, in the biblical tradition. All right, it goes on. Although absolute rest is something, eternal, unchanging, it is at the same time the place of origin and creativity. It is the circular snake, the primal dragon that bites its own tail, the self begetting Ouroboros. It slays, weds, and impregnates itself. It is man and woman, beginning and conceiving devouring and giving birth active and passive above and below at once exactly exactly those opposites together simultaneously at once what does that mean what I- what does that mean you can't know you can only you can only experiment through images to figure out, you know, to have any hope of understanding what that paradox means. By the way, that sort of hippy-dippy um, talk is the, is the reason why hard-nosed academics and scientists don't take this stuff seriously. The same reason why those those people aren't willing to delve into their soul, into the, the realm of the unknowable, um, because those people don't believe it's worthwhile, you know, or they don't believe that there is an unknowable. And, you know, fair enough, because mostly they're atheists. But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this other part of human experience, the 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 psychic part, the spiritual part of human experience that academics and scientists today just write off wholesale, you know. All right, this last bit in this section goes like this. As heavenly serpent, the Ouroboros is the archetype of the All One, appearing as Leviathan and as Aeon and Oceanus and also the primal being that says, I am Alpha and Omega. As the Knef of antiquity, um, the most ancient deity of the prehistoric world, the Ouroboros can be traced in the revelation of St. John and among the Gnostics as well as among the Romans. There are pictures of it in the sand paintings of the Navajo, and it is found in Egypt, Africa, Mexico, and India, among the gypsies as an amulet, and in the alchemical texts. So, again, if you didn't believe that the Ouroboros is a symbol that's found everywhere, all through space and time, in every era of human history, there's the evidence. And every single one of these images is the image of a snake or a serpent or a dragon. They're all very, very similar. And what is the explanation for that? They're, they're not borrowing ideas from each other. These things are coming off from all over the world and all across are, are the very, various epics of human history because there's something in human beings that models this. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what time you were born in there's something in human consciousness that is apt to bring this idea you know into consideration to bring this idea into being of an ouroboros that brings me to the next section which is called creation as the birth of consciousness here we go the validity and reality of the ouroboros symbol corresponds to an evolutionary stage which can be recollected in the psychic structure of every human being. It was there before the formation of the ego. So the story that we're going to hear about the creation of the world, the the story that describes the Ouroboros, that it was there before the creation of our ego. It was in the unconscious when we were in the unconscious, before we became an I. We existed with the archetypes. We existed with this particular meaning and this particular story we, we, can, bring, we can bring with us. He, he says we can recollect it, but he puts that in quotes. Like, you know, we can remember it, but not in the traditional way of remembering. It's something else, something deeper. Then he says, an embryonic germ of ego consciousness slumbers in the perfect round and awakens. Since the ego can have no experiences of its own in the embryonic state, the latter ego will describe this earlier state of which it has indefinite knowledge as a prenatal time, as a time before time. You know, that reminds me again of the aboriginal Australians which talk about their myths occurring in the dream time. He goes on, it is the time of existence in paradise, the time before the birth of the ego. The time of unconscious envelopment of swimming in the ocean of the unborn.. And you can see that story in the Bible in, in the Adam and Eve story. You know, they exist in paradise, in the garden. They become conscious after eating the fruit, and that's what removes paradise, right? That's what kicks them out of paradise, becoming conscious. This is what he's describing. The ego emerges from the unconscious. right? The ego emerges from the unconscious. Before it came out of the unconscious, it existed. But it existed in the dream time, in the the mythological time, in the time before time, you know, in the land before time, if you're an 80s and 90s kid, Uh, something like that. All right, he goes on, he says, this state of being is eternity, just as the time before birth is eternity. And just as there is no time before the birth of man and ego, so there is no space, only infinity. So this is interesting. So if you can go back to the prenatal time, to the dream time, to the time before your ego was born, when you were just floating around in the unconscious, whilst you're floating around in your mother's womb, um, you don't have a self yet. You don't make a distinction between yourself and the womb. For you, yourself and the womb are the world, and that's all there is. Remember, that's kind of the state we're trying to remember. And he's saying before your consciousness emerges as a self, before you can say, I am, before you know what I is, right? Right. In that state, there is no time in space. Now, you, you might be in vitro for a certain specific number of months or whatever, but to the awareness of the fetus, it's eternity. The time before time doesn't have a ticking clock. It, it was forever, right? Just like, just like, forever existed before you were born. Right. And when and you have your earliest memory, that's, that's when the world started for you. That's how it feels. And yet there was, there's still eternity behind you, you know? And so there's this weird, there's this weird parallel between the state you were in before you had an ego, before you were aware of you, uh, yourself as an independent self, when you were just part of your mother. When you were just the, the germ of, of your own consciousness, still more part of your mother than, than independent and on your own, And that, that symbol, that, that way of understanding yourself in that state, is like the way, it's, it's, it's like the way we understand the, the state of physics before the Big Bang. There was no time, there was no space. There was only this emerging potentiality. It's beautiful. All right, then he says, the question about the origin must always be answered by womb. For it is the experience of mankind that every newborn creature comes from a womb. Hence, the round of mythology is also called the womb. This primordial symbol is not just one concept or part of the body, but a plurality, a cosmic region where many contents hide. Anything deep, the abyss, valley, ground, also the sea in the bottom of the, in the bottom of the sea, fountains, lakes, and pools, the earth and the underworld, the cave, all are parts of this archetype. Anything big and embracing which contains, shelters, preserves, and nourishes anything small belongs to the primordial matriarchal realm. So this is an idea of all of these symbols, like he's talking about, this web of symbols that surrounds this idea that we don't understand. So we have this primordial symbol, we call it the Ouroboros, and we imagine that somehow that's, that represents the beginning. And when you think about that, it's not just a womb, like he said, it, but that's one way of looking at it. You can One of the symbols that surrounds the Ouroboros is womb. One of them is round, and sphere, and egg, and... The deep, and the ground, and the sea, and lakes, and pools, and the earth, and the underworld, and a cave, and all of these ideas surround the idea of of the Orboros. And you can you can see. I mean, think about the um, the analogy, the uh, Plato's analogy of the cave. Um, if you go into a cave, if you're living into a cave in a cave, and you don't know about the outside world, let's say, and that's what happens in Plato's analogy, and you escape the cave. When you finally reach the opening of that cave and you emerge from the earth into this new place, that's something very like a baby being born. You know, you can imagine that. So you can start to see all of these pictures that start to surround this idea of the Ouroboros. And they all have connections to one another, but they're all very different words. And it's the meaning that you can gain from looking at them all. Like what does the abyss have in common with the cave? You know, it's something hidden. It's something deep. It's something uh, mysterious. You know, the all of these words continue to emerge from just thinking about this idea that you don't understand. And you can see how all of these images appear in dreams. They appear in myths. You know, how often do you have to go into the underworld in a myth? How often do you have to go, you know, down into the dark cave and fight the dragon or whatever it is? these sorts of, of, of ideas will show up in our stories about the things that we do not understand. And in our creation stories, the thing that we do not understand is the source of creation itself, God. And these are the words that start to fill out or flesh out what the fuck God means. All right, he goes on, he says, in the phase of life when ego swims about in the round like a tadpole, There is nothing but the Ouroboros in existence. Naturally then, the first phase of man's evolving ego are under the dominance of the Ouroboros. That just means that you're starting starting out in the unconscious. You're starting out in some completely unknowable state where you're not even quite sure uh, where you begin and the world ends. And this is the state that you're slowly emerging from. Something like chaos. He says, The world is experienced as all-embracing, and in it, man experiences himself as a self, sporadically and momentarily only. Ego, feebly developed, easily tired, emerges like an island out of the ocean of the unconscious, and then sinks back again. So early man experiences the world, small, feeble, and much given to sleep, for the most part, unconscious. So this is interesting, man. It's like, it's like there's a struggle going on where consciousness is trying to emerge from unconscious. The unconscious is wild and powerful and, and consciousness is the opposite, you know, and it's struggling against impossible odds, trying to just peek its head up out of the water of, of the unconscious. And every now and then, the ego can do that. The ego's formed for the first time, and it just peeks its head above the water. And it's not strong enough to remain, so that this, the unconscious just sucks it back down. And it's like you... It, i Imagine a drowning person in the ocean, you know? And the waves are throwing them around, and they just keep swimming for the surface and just panicking and every time they can they can break the surface they take a big breath and then they get pulled back down by the currents and it's like a battle going on for consciousness to emerge from unconsciousness. And I have to say that when I had when I had my mystic experience, I felt that. I absolutely felt that. I, I felt like I felt like I was confronted with a, with a power that was great and awe-inspiring and terrible. And it's like the ocean. It's like an angry ocean. And I knew that I emerged from that ocean and that I was that ocean, you know? And there's something empowering about identifying yourself with the ocean. But being unable to, to tear yourself apart from the ego, which is, again, something that comes up in mystic experience, they call it an ego death. But you struggle against that. You know, you don't want to let your ego go. It feels like dying, you know, like the way you would be clawing tooth and nail to save your own life if you were being thrown about in the ocean like that. That's the way it feels. And then when you, when you let go, when you submit to it in a mystic intuition, you do become the ocean. That's the, th- it seems to be the thing you fear most to get swallowed up by it, but But when you allow it to happen, and and you do get swallowed up by it, you don't find that you're gone like you were afraid of. You find that you're the ocean, you know, this this hugely powerful thing that you were afraid of, that that you now have become. And that's another example of that paradox that comes up in mystic experience. And we see it in myths and dreams, and Eric Neumann is pointing it out. All right, last quote in this past, in this section goes like this. Nothing is himself. Everything is world. The world shelters and nourishes him while he scarcely wills and acts at all. Such is that early beatific state, the Ouroboros, the refuge for all suffering, the goal of all desire, the state of being contained in the whole without responsibility or effort, with no doubts and no division in paradise and can never again be realized in adult life. The positive side of the great mother seems to be embodied in the stage of the Ouroboros. All right, so the great mother is just a way of talking about the feminine side of the Ouroboros, the chaos side, the Tiamat side, the unconscious side. And again, what what we're meant to be thinking about here is yourself, you know, as a fetus, let's say. Where, where you don't really make a distinction between yourself and the world. And the world is the fetus and, the, and your mother. And you don't even... How do I say this? You, you, well, you just don't you, don't... you don't have consciousness of the distinction between you and your mother. So yourself and world are one mm-hmm. thing. You're, you're in a, a state of shelter and a state of nourishment constantly. You don't have to want anything right you're not even sure what you would what you would want at that stage in your development you don't have a will of your own exactly um so you it you do seem to be handcuffed in this state but you also d- don't seem to care that you're handcuffed you know what i mean it's like you're in this warm dark place you're resting you're, you know you're being fed you're, you know you're warm and comfortable um you know that that must be Something like paradise, he said, a state where you have no responsibility, no effort, no doubts, you know? Yeah, there's something about that that does seem paradisal, doesn't it? And he describes that state like I'm describing to you, if you can remember or, fa- or imagine what it was like to be a fetus, that this was that there's a parallel here to the birth of consciousness, that there's a parallel here to the birth of the cosmos. And that brings me to our last section, which is called Back to Eden or Eastward. All right, it starts like this. Ouroboric incest is a form of entry into the mother, of union with her. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Ouroboric incest is a weird phrase um the fact that this in- incest idea comes up in depth psychology like going way back to freud is you know you guys probably uh, recall that um uh, edible complex and all that stuff but this idea of orborg incest is just something like wanting to go back to a state like you were in when you were a fetus imagine that like you want to go back to a state where you have no responsibility where you have no doubts, where you have no worries, where everything's taken care of for you, and you can just sort of rest, you know. Um so this is what he calls Ouroboric incest when he when he says that people long for that state, let's say, when they're not supposed to be in it. You know, if you are if you're a fetus, you're supposed to be in it. You know, maybe if you're dying, you're supposed to be in it. Um but in the middle you, know, you shouldn't want to be in a state without responsibility, right? Or effort. What's the point of living if you have no effort or responsibility where you have nothing to do, you know? So it's almost like we understand the appeal to that sort of an existence. And you have to be careful of when you allow yourself to follow it, follow that instinct. All right, so it goes like this. Orborg incest is a form of entry into the mother... Of union with her, passively one sinks into the uh, pleroma, melts away in the ocean of pleasure. Always over Ouroboric incest, there stands the insignia of death, signifying final dissolution in union with the mother. Cave, earth, tomb are all symbols of this ritual recombination, which begins with the burial and the posture of the embryo in the Stone Age. So, if you guys don't know that, um, these burials that they've, that they've uncovered from way back in, deep into the Stone Age, people were buried with their arms and legs folded up like their fetus, like they're buried in the fetal position. And you might think that's strange, but it's, it's really not. You know, It's like Mother Earth is considered to be the womb from which we came. All things come. So you dig a hole in the earth, you create a womb, and you put that baby back, back where it came from. You fold it back up like an embryo, and you put it back into the womb of the earth. That's what they did in the Stone Age. Amazing, right? He says, Many forms of longing satisfy no more than a return to Ouroboric incest and self disillusion, from the unio mystica of the saints to the drunkard's craving for unconsciousness and the death romanticism of the Germanic races. So what he's pointing out here is a longing for rest, for peace, and for unconsciousness. And that's like a longing for death, you know? And you can see it, he said, you can see it in the drunkard. You can see it in the people who escape into drugs and alcohol, you know, and that's a temptation that we're all, you know, that we're all uh, have to to deal with at some point in our life or, or at many times in our life, that we do have this instinct to go back to this unconscious state where there are no responsibilities and everything is pleasure. And what that means is something like no longer being conscious, we dissolve ourselves and, in, in, you know, become more unconscious. And he says you can see that with with people doing drugs and drinking. You can see that with people that romanticize death. He talks about the Germanic races, but, you know, what comes to my mind is um, Dia de, de las Muerta, right? The, uh, the Day of the Dead. Um, the, these different um, r- largely religious um, rituals where we romanticize death. You know, it shows us that there's something about this original state we were in, this Ouroboric state of completion and wholeness, that we, we long for that and that we know that, it, that it, the price of that is death, you know, the dissolution of our consciousness. And he goes on, he says, the embryonic ego does not experience uh, this self-delusion as anything hostile, even though it be annihilated. Consciousness always feels its reawakening, After having been immersed in death as a rebirth, it feels protected by the maternal depths, even when the ego has disappeared and there is no consciousness of itself. Oh, wow. Okay. So what he's saying here is that when you give in to the instinct for self-disillusion, when that, that ego death instinct, when you give in to it and you no longer want to be conscious, that even though that's scary... It's also it also feels good, you know um you 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 hear that people say things like letting go, you know, like people that have near death experiences or whatever they talk about that letting go as though it feels good to let go and to and to pass you know to pass away to die, um that to live is a struggle and to let go is somehow a relief, and this is kind of how it comes across to me it says. Um, that, that the soul or the psyche feels protected by the maternal depths even when the ego has disappeared. It's like the thing that's destroying you, killing you, dissolving your ego is also like a freaking feather pillow you're falling into, you know, something like that. And I think the, the notion of being protected by the depths perfectly describes the joy and satisfaction of the mystic experience you know it's the thing that's responsible for dissolving your ego the thing that's killing you for lack of a better word is also something that you're like like welcome arms that you're falling into and you and that again is an example of paradox you've got the fear of death and dissolution then you've got the joy and satisfaction of the experience and they're opposites and they're happening at once you know and He says, "In every individual consciousness, re-experiences its emergence from the unconscious in the growth of childhood, and every night in sleep, dying with the sun, it sinks back into the depths of the unconscious to be reborn in the morning." And so, what he's saying here is this: this ego disillusion, this appeal that that has to us, this like return to this paradisal state that we all feel ourselves to have originally come from in the beginning and our desire to fall back into that unconscious state, um, that it feels like a death and rebirth, you know? And not only do we seek it out um, in our lives, but we also experience a version of it every time we wake from sleeping. Like we've been reborn. Our consciousness is just there again. Where did it go all night? I don't know, but it's here now, reliably, you know? You have a death and a rebirth every night. And then he says he says that you see it in in the growth of childhood, but by that I think he means um, as you're growing and developing and you enter new eras of your life, you become you feel like you've become a new person, you know, and we all feel like there's some experiences that we have that we're just not the same afterwards, which is fundamentally changed by. You know, puberty is a good one, heartbreak is a good one, you know, um, the death of a loved one is a good one, things like that. And when you have those experiences, you do feel reborn. And by that, I simply mean you feel like you're somebody else on the other side. And so there's something like that that we feel, again, at various important moments in our life, but every single morning when we, we, when we wake up. So this idea of death and rebirth is somehow deeply ingrained in us. Right, he goes on. He says, the Ouroboros is not only the womb, but the world parents. The world father is joined to the, to the world mother. The tremendous force of this primordial symbol of the psyche symbolizes the creative impulse of the new beginning. So the world parents coming together symbolize a new beginning. Why? Well, there's sexual symbolism there, obviously. The male and the female come together, the opposites are united, and something new is born. And he says, mankind asks about the origin of life And immediately, life and the soul fuse into one as living psyche. This one is the creative force contained in the Ouroboric unity of the world parents. So life and soul get fused to one, just like the world parents are fused to one in this Ouroboric unity in the beginning. And then he says, the primal ocean, likewise, as origination symbol. For the Ouroboros is also the ocean. Is the is the source not only of creation, but of wisdom too. Hence, the early culture heroes often come up from the sea in the shape of a half fish, like the Babylonian Onis, and bring their wisdom as revelation to mankind. So that's interesting. So the so this primordial symbol of the Ouroboros is also seen as the ocean, the deep, the abyss. We talked about that. It's this It's this endless place, you know, that you you don't know what's there, but it's full of potential, and anything can come from it, and it's powerful and terrible all at the same time. That's the Ouroboros. And in our myths, we imagine imagine beings coming, emerging from the ocean. And some of these uh, beings are important mythological um, figures, and they often bring revelation to us. And so there's a connection, but not only... Of creation that that is connected to the Ouroboros or the ocean, but also of revelation. So they're getting wisdom from the unconscious. Because remember, the unconscious is a symbol, symbolized by the ocean. So the example that gets pr- brought up is a very, very ancient one um, from Babylon. Uh, but I guess what I want to say here is that going, going into the sea really is, is to enter the unconscious. And you know that you risk dissolution if you do that you know your your ego may be d- dissolved and carried away by the by the vast ocean of the unconscious so you're taking a risk when you do that but you can return there with with something valuable, right? And so this is the story of going into the underworld to rescue, you know, your father, or to go into the cave to 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 fight with the dragon and rescue the damsel to find the treasure. This mythological motif you see over and over and over again in every single Marvel movie you've ever seen, you know. And and it, it, you know this is this is the story. Um, I also want to mention that from the Hindu religion, which is the oldest uh, that that continually exists today. You know, the the Hindu religion has a similar story of uh, revelation coming from the ocean. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but there's a story about a character named Manu. And Manu is kind of like Adam. He's the first man, but he's also kind of like Noah. He's he's a character that was, that was, that survives uh, the great flood, the flood of the world. Um, And and, in Hinduism, he was warned by a fish. He, he caught a fish, and when he pulled it up into the boat, it bartered for its life, basically. But the fish happened to be a god, you know, which is the case oftentimes in Hinduism and these myths. Um, things aren't what they seem. And so the fish tells Manu about the coming flood so that he can save himself and his family. Even though the world is destroyed, he, he is saved. So here's another example, not only from the from, from Babylon, but here from India, of Wisdom coming from the ocean and the ocean being a symbol for the unconscious. So, so there's something here about maybe a bottomless source of treasure, of value that's hidden in, in the unconscious. All right, it goes on. The knowledge of one still unfolded in the perfect state is evident in the psychology of the child. For this reason, many primitive peoples treat children with particular marks of respect. In the child, the great images and archetypes of the collective unconscious are living reality. Many of his reactions, questions, dreams, and images express this knowledge, which still drives from his prenatal existence. And this is interesting. I mean, you kind of know that mythological stories, oftentimes they read a bit like children's stories. And what he's saying here is that there's a reason for that, that children are much closer to the state of the unconscious. They're much closer to the state from which they came when they were were a fetus, when they were one thing with their mother, when they were existing primarily in the unconscious, the place where all the, remember, where all the knowledge and revelation can come from. They were swimming in that place only a couple of short months ago, only a couple of short years ago, not like you and I, who, who are decades removed from it. And if you talk to a child, you'll see the things they say, the things they dream, the questions they asked, how they react to things, they're different from an adult. They're much more open to the idea of mystery and magic and um, meaning, right? And so what he's what Neumann's saying here is that children have always been seen as closer to that state of being, closer to God in some ways. And that may remind you of something that Jesus said, which was to be as little children. You know, if you wanna if you wanna get to the kingdom of heaven, then you must be as little children. This is I think what he means. And I've told this story before, but I, I'll just say that um, you know, say what you will about uh about illicit substances um and marijuana included, but I can tell you that one thing one thing that marijuana seems to do um reliably, is to put adults back into the state of a child, back into the state of wonder, the wonder of being, the wonder of being alive, the wonder of the world around you and everything in it. It seems to restore this childlike way of looking at the world. And if you ever dabble in that as an adult, what you'll notice is, like anything, you can go too far. But there is huge amounts of value in that. Is a tremendous amount of value in being able to see the world again as full of meaning and magic because it fucking is. All right, last quote goes like this. The materialization of psychic contents like life, immortality, and death take on material form and myth. Inside is projected outside, as we say. In reality, there is a psychization of the object, everything outside of us, is experienced symbolically as something psychic or spiritual. So again, you can see a conflation between the outside world and your inner world. And that's very significant. All right, I lied when I said that was the last section. I have a couple of more quotes for you. Um, The final section is called Paradise Lost. And it goes like this. Active and passive striving gradually become distinct. The opposites make their appearance, and the ego begins to distinguish itself from the Ouroboros. This means the end of the beatific Ouroboric state of perfection and absolute self-sufficiency. Okay, so when the ego finally emerges, it, it discovers its own will, something like that. and the world, parents are separated by this new will, which they gave birth to. And that's the new God that's born. That's Marduk that separates Apsu and and Tiamat. Um, And it marks the end of that beatific state. It it marks the end of Adam and Eve's time in paradise. You know, they're conscious, they're aware, they're no longer able to stay in this unconscious state where you're supported and nourished and protected and and all that, um, you know, by by chaos, for lack of a better word. You find yourself on your own. You know, you no longer have that completeness, that self-sufficiency that's symbolized by the Ouroboros. You're on your own. And the Bible says um, that Adam and Eve are sent out to till the soil and their life is going to be pain from that point on and so on and so forth. And that That's the reality of the world that we, that we live in. That's our existence. And so it's not just a story. It's not just a children's story. It's so much deeper than that. Right, he says, detachment from the Ouroboros, entry into the world, and the encounter with the universal principle of opposites are the essential tasks of the development of personality and for individual realizations. Its center of gravity lies in self-formation, in the building up and filling out of a personality which uses the objects of, of the inner and outer worlds as building material for its own wholeness. This wholeness is an end in itself. So this is interesting. This goes back to what I said earlier about the realization when you finally become an ego, when you finally become an I, and you realize that you have control over your experiences and can change yourself as a consequence of those experiences, you become your own creator in a really real way. You become your own god You're the thing that gets to determine what experiences you have and how you will transform and what you will become. And what's so interesting here is he says, in the building up and filling out of personality, which uses the objects of the inner and outer worlds as building material for its own wholeness. And so that's what's happening. You're having experiences of yourself. Those are internal experiences. You're having experiences of the outside world. Those are external experiences. And you're using those experiences to build yourself in whatever way you want to become. And you might wonder what the end game is. And it seems like the end game is exactly like what we were describing before when we were talking about Ouroboric incest, the desire to have your your ego dissolved and to return to this paradisal state of union with, with God, that kind of thing. That's actually what you're doing in your life. You're building yourself up to make yourself whole. You're filling the gap. You're uniting, you're uniting the opposites again within yourself, which is another way of saying returning to the Ouroboros. It's another way of saying, becoming God. And that's what we're doing. Amazing. All right, the last quote goes like this. Thus, the Ouroboros arches over man's life, encompassing his early childhood and receiving him again in altered form at the end. But in his own individual life too, the pleroma of universal unity can be sought and found in religious experience. And mysticism where the self-reentrant figure of the Ouroboros appears as the ocean of Godhead. There is, an off, there is often a dissolution of the ego, an ecstatic surrender, which is equivalent to Ouroboric incest. But when, instead of the, uh, the death ecstasy of the ego, the principle of rebirth dominates, and the theme of rebirth prevails over that of death, this is not a regression, but a creative process. All right, so I got to say, there's a lot there, but this might be the sucker punch of the whole thing, because he says he brings up mysticism, and God bless him for doing it, Neumann. He brings up mysticism, and he says this experience of of becoming God, of becoming complete, and uh, sinking back into the unconscious, that if if you seek after that experience because you want to disappear, because you don't want to be conscious anymore, because you want to die, that sort of thing. Um. That is, it's like deep, deep sickness. It's like going against your own deepest instincts, you know? And you can see that in the example of like escapism, you know? It's people that, that you know, do drugs and alcohol and they just don't want to be conscious anymore. They just want to sink back into this o- oblivion, you know? That's not good. But then he talks about mysticism and he says, you know, there's this m- mystic route of getting there. He says, he calls it ecstatic surrender. I mean, he says it's equivalent to the Ouroboric incest. That's the idea. The Ouroboric incest is the idea of escapism, you know? So you have this m- method of sinking back into oblivion that you can do as a religious exercise. And it's not like the people that are doing drugs to escape, even though they're after the same experience. The reason it's different is because the person trying to escape is what they want is death, right? The person, who's, the person who's looking for completion and seeking a religious experience, that person is seeking rebirth. They know they must die in order to continue, right? They, they're after immortality, not death. And that makes the difference. And I also think it's amazing that Neumann even brings this up that that in mysticism you have a route to this religious experience of God of the of reuniting with the orboros, even temporarily. And so long as you have the goal of rebirth in mind that it's actually desirable to do that. That's a interesting thing to hear from Neumann, and it's just a it's just so close to recommending you know psychedelic experience that I. I just find it interesting, especially because Carl Jung, who was Neumann's teacher, didn't really have good things to say about that. He kind of saw psychedelic experiences as cheating, you know, you're cheating to get there. I don't know if I agree with that, but that brings me to my conclusion, which goes like this. In Neumann's opening chapter, he shows us the image of the Ouroboros and describes its appearance in our oldest stories and our myths about creation. The prevalence and universality of the symbol is also noted. Why is the symbol of the union of opposites present cross-culturally and across time? Why is it conceptualized as a creative God at all? Why do we seem to understand its meaning when we could hardly even put it into words? Neumann answers by relating the myth of the Ouroboros to our own experience, to the universal human experience of being conceived from the union of opposites, you know, gametes really, developing and being born into the material world. In this way, we see a compelling parallel between how we intuit the unfolding of the material cosmos with the unfolding of our psyche. In myth, we see a source of being to match our own sense of being. We see a unity, a wholeness that matches our instinct towards wholeness. We see a state of paradise to match our myths and find Eden in the womb of our mothers. In birth, we see the coming of the light, the light that God spoke forth in the beginning, the light of consciousness that brings an inner world to match the outer. And everywhere we look, we see the tension of opposites. We remember through these stories that we were once one with God, just as the cosmos was in the Ouroboros, that we created our own being, our own independence from the source. We are the self created, just as God is the self created. And this, Neumann points out, explains our human longing, our ceaseless striving. But longing for what? Striving for what? We may not always know, but the answer is always wholeness. We are striving for completion, for God, for the union of opposites. And we can find this union again within ourselves. Neumann warns that unity, mystic oneness, is a dangerous desire It calls us eternally, but we follow it at great risk, since to rejoin ourselves with God brings us back to Eden, back to prenatal dissolution. We risk ego death and destruction. Neumann calls this Ouroboric incest and describes it as spiritual escapism. It is to sink back into the unconscious, to crawl back into the womb, to give up to recoil from life, and to fall away into nothingness. It calls to mind nihilism, depression, and the desire for self-destruction. But he also describes another path. Interestingly, he mentions mystic experience in a similar light, as a path to mystic oneness. The difference surrounds motivation, intention, to escape or to sacrifice, that is the question. Are you offering yourself, your ego, back to the source as if you aren't happy with your purchase and want a goddamn refund? Or are you choosing to make a self-destroying sacrifice as the price for rebirth? One route is death, the other eternal life.